Chapter 3 What time is it? The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Romans 13, 12 You probably know the story of Paul's shipwreck, Acts 27. You remember how the apostle and his companions were battered by a storm for thirteen days. Neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days, and they gave up all hope that they would be saved. But do you remember that about midnight, on the fourteenth night, the shipmen sensed that they were approaching land? They measured and found the depth of the water to be twenty fathoms. When they had gone a little farther, they measured again, and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Then, afraid they might be dashed against the rocks near the shore, they dropped four anchors out of the stern and wished for day to come. Think what an anxious night that must have been! How often some of the two hundred and seventy-six men on board the great Alexandrian ship must have said, How much longer until morning? What time is it? You have probably heard of the Battle of Waterloo. You know that the Duke of Wellington fought that battle with the understanding that the Prussians would come up on the left of his army and help him against the French. But the way was long, and the roads were bad. The evening was coming before the Prussians could arrive at the field. In the meantime, the battle escalated. Hour after hour, the British forces were thinned by the furious attacks of the enemy. One gallant man after another was killed or carried away wounded. Think what an anxious afternoon that must have been! How often the sun and the shadows must have been observed! How often the soldiers must have checked their watches and seen the general's eye turned to the left! How often the anxious question must have risen in men's minds, What time is it? You have probably sat at the sickbed of some whom you dearly loved. You have seen them hovering between life and death, and have passed weeks in painful suspense. You have sat by and watched the struggle between the body and its infirmities, and felt the miserable helplessness of not being able to do anything but look on. And don't you know how slowly the hours roll around at a time like this? Have not the clocks and watches seemed to stand still, and the sun appeared to have forgotten to rise? Have you not often said, When will the doctor come again? Will the morning never come? What time is it? You and I are in a world that is rapidly rolling on towards the day of judgment. There is an hour before us all when the earth and its works will be burned up, and its inhabitants will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a day coming whose issues are of far more importance than those of shipwreck, battle, or disease. Surely it is appropriate for us to think of that day. Are we ready for it? Is it possible that we may live to see it? Is it near, or is it far off? What time is it? Come with me and consider the thoughts of an inspired apostle on this serious subject. He says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. These words ought to awaken our consciences like the blast of a trumpet. They ought to rouse our sleeping minds to a sense of the eternal realities which are before us. They urge us to not delay or waste time or be careless about our Christianity. They summon us to a close walk with God.
Four questions are brought to mind by the words of this verse, and I will speak about each of these. 1. What is the present condition of the world? 2. What is the condition of the world that is coming? 3. What is the particular time in which we live? And 4. What is the duty of all believers who know the time? What is the present condition of the world? The Apostle Paul calls it night. The night, he says, is far spent. I don't doubt that word seems strange to some people. They think it wonderful that this year should be called night. They are living in days of learning, science, civilization, commerce, freedom, and knowledge. They see around them goods and experiences that their ancestors never dreamed of. I am aware of them all, and am thankful for them, but I still say that in the things of God the world is in a state of night. I believe that God looks down on this globe of ours as it rolls around the sun, and as He looks on it He pronounces it very dark. I believe that the angels go back and forth reporting what they see on our earth, and their constant report is very dark. And I am sure that believers in the Lord Jesus in every land are of one mind on this subject. They cry and sigh because of the abominations they see around them. To them the world appears very dark. Is it not dark in heathen lands? Two-thirds of the whole world is in open rebellion against God and His Christ. Many of the world's inhabitants still have no Bible, no gospel, no knowledge, no faith, no hope. They are cruel, deceitful, immoral, unclean, earthly, sensual, devilish, idolatrous, and superstitious. Surely that is night. Is it not dark in many countries that profess to be Christian? Many of the people on earth who call themselves Christians are unsound in their faith. Their religion is not solely scriptural. They have added to it many things that are not found in the Bible. They have left out of it many things that the Bible has plainly commanded. There are millions who give honor to the Virgin Mary and to dead saints instead of to Christ. There are millions of baptized people who know nothing of the Bible and have not the slightest idea of the salvation contained in the gospel. Certainly that is night. Is it not dark in our own country in this present day? How much sin and how little of God! How much open infidelity, biblical ignorance, drunkenness, Sabbath-breaking, swearing, cheating, lying, and covetousness are weakly crying against us before the Lord of hosts! Some go to church merely as a formality, and many go to no place of worship at all. How few are really earnest about the salvation of their souls! How few have any evidence to show of a saving faith in Christ and a real work of the Spirit in their hearts! Even among ourselves it is night. Go to what are considered to be the most godly cities and regions of the country, and you will find that even there very few people are truly converted Christians. If that is the case in the green and living parts, what must it be like in the dry and dead areas? Surely it is night. It is useless to deny such things. Humbling as it may be to the pride of human nature, the word of the apostle is true, 
It is now night. The unconverted may not perceive it. Those without grace may not comprehend it. The blind eye sees no difference between noon and midnight. The deaf ear makes no distinction between discord and sweet music. The paralyzed limb has no feeling either of heat or cold. But I do believe that God's children can understand the expression. The people of the Lord Jesus Christ find by experience that it is night. It is a cold time for believers. They meet with much to chill and dampen their zeal, but little to cheer and warm their hearts. They have to put up with many hardships and disappointments. They see sin abounding, and their own love is apt to become cold. Why? Because it is night. It is a lonely time for believers. They find little company on the way that leads to heaven. Here and there they meet one who loves the Lord Jesus and lives by faith. A few of God's children may be found in one town and a few in another, but on the whole the children of the world seem like the Syrian army which filled the country. 1 Kings 20.27 And the children of God are like a few scattered sheep in a wilderness. And why? Because it is night. It is a dangerous time for believers. They often stumble and can barely make out their path. They often stand in doubt and don't know which way to turn. They don't see their trail markers and lose sight of their landmarks. At best, they travel on in continual fear of enemies. Why? Because it is night. I ask you to consider these things. If it is now night, you will not wonder why we warn Christians to watch and pray. You will not think it strange if we tell you to live like soldiers in an enemy's country and to be always on your guard. Ask yourself if you find this world in which you live to be night or day. Is now a time of conflict or a time of ease? Do you feel that your best things are here in this life or that your best things are yet to come? I ask these questions so you can test your spiritual state. I set them before you as a gauge and measure of your soul's condition. If you have never found this world a wilderness and place of darkness, it is an evil sign of your state in the sight of God. True believers will find the words of their crucified Lord to be absolutely true. In the world ye shall have tribulation. John 16:33. True believers, like their Lord and Master, will be made perfect through sufferings. Hebrews 2.10 True believers will mourn over the world they live in as a world in rebellion against its rightful King. Sin will grieve them. Ungodliness will depress them. Like Lot in Sodom, their righteous souls will be frustrated daily with much that they see and hear. They will long for the time when the day will dawn and the shadows flee away. But for now, they will feel it is night. Is it your night or day? What is the condition of the world that is coming? The Apostle Paul calls it day. The day is at hand. This day, Paul speaks of, is the time all Christians should look forward to, the time when the Lord Jesus Christ will come again. The present state of things in the Church of Christ will undergo a mighty change, 
a change so great that it will be like the turning of night into day. The world we live in will not always continue as it does now. The darkness of sin, ignorance, and superstition will not always cover the earth. The sun of righteousness will one day rise with healing in his wings. The Lord Jesus will come again with power and great glory. He will return as a morning without clouds, and then it will be day. There is a time coming when the devil will be bound and will no longer rule this world. Revelation 20. Sin and all its consequences will be cast out. The groaning creation will at last be refreshed. Acts 3.19. The wicked will be imprisoned forever in their own place. The saints of the Most High will finally possess the kingdom. Righteousness will reside in a new heaven and a new earth. Certainly that will be day. There is a time coming when believers will have joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing will flee far away. Every tear will be wiped away, every cross laid down, every anxiety removed, every adversity taken away. Persecution, temptation, sickness, mourning, parting, separation, and death will end. Surely that will be sunshine. It will be day. There is a time coming when the whole family of Christ will be gathered together. They will rise from their narrow beds and each put on a glorious body. They will awake from their long sleep refreshed, strengthened, and far more beautiful than when they lay down. They will leave behind them in their graves every imperfection and will meet without spot or wrinkle. Ephesians 5.27, to part no more. That will be a joyful morning. It will be day. There is a time coming when believers will no longer see through a glass darkly, but face to face. 1 Corinthians 13.12. They will see as they have been seen, and know as they have been known. They will cease to argue and dispute about outward matters, and will think of nothing but eternal realities. They will see their crucified Lord and Savior with literal sight, and no longer follow Him by faith. They will see one another free from the stain of sin, and will misunderstand one another's motives and conduct no more. Definitely that will be day. There is great comfort here for every believer in Christ. There is a day before you, a glorious day. You sometimes feel now as if you walk in darkness and have no light. You often have a hard battle to fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil. You sometimes believe you will never win your way home, but will faint on the way. Your flesh and heart are ready to fail. You are painfully tempted to give up and to sit down in despair. But take comfort in the thought of things still to come. There is a good time in front of you. Your day has yet to dawn. But for many of those who profess to be Christians, I also see here a great reason to be afraid. There are many, too many, I fear, for whom the time to come will be anything but day. There are many whose happiness is evidently all here below, whose treasure is all on earth, whose brightest time is now, and whose gloomiest prospects are in the hereafter. The further they look on, the darker everything appears. Old age looks dark. 
sickness looks darker still, death and judgment look darkest of all. O friend, if this is how it is with you, I warn you that there must be a change. Your views, your tastes, your preferences, your attachments must be renewed and transformed. You must learn to view the present world and the world that is to come in a very different light. Go sit at the feet of Jesus and ask Him to teach you this lesson. Ask for the enlightening Spirit to anoint your eyes so that you can see. Ask for the veil to be taken away so that you may see everything in its true colors. Satan works hard to prevent people from thinking of a better world than that in which they now live. He strives to turn their eyes from the coming day. He gladly persuades them that it is impossible to live their lives in this world while setting their thoughts and affections on things above. He whispers to people that we ministers want them to become gloomy hermits or fanatical haters and cynics, and that if they listen to us, they will become unfit for all of life's relationships. Be on guard against all of Satan's suggestions. I am not asking you to neglect the duties of your occupation or the role God has called you to fill. I encourage no one to be rude and gloomy as if there were nothing to be thankful for in this world. I don't praise anyone who refuses to show love and affection to their family, friends, or other relationships. I only ask that believers in the New Testament live by a New Testament standard. They should look for the coming of the day of God, wait for the Son of God from heaven, and love the Lord's appearing. I despise all fanatical absurdity on the subject of future things. I have no opinion of any religion which makes people neglect their business or cease to love their spouse, children, relatives, and friends. I only ask that we take scriptural views of the present things and things as they will one day be. I ask that we see our present evils and mourn over them, and that we see and long for our future good things. Let us honestly acknowledge that sin is around us, and let us long to be delivered from its presence. Let us honestly confess that holiness will one day spread over the earth, and let us long for it to come. Never be ashamed to admit that it is night, and that we want it to be day. Can you really hate sin, but not desire to see it swept away from the earth? Can you love holiness, but not long for the time when all will know the Lord? Can you be truly united to Christ by faith, but not wish to see Christ and be with Him? Can you be a saint and not thirst after the absolute fellowship of just people made perfect? Can you be sincere if you daily pray, Thy kingdom come, but are content if the world goes on as it is without any change? Oh, no, no! These things are impossible. God's true children will want to be at home. They will wish for the day. If you desire to be saved, you must learn to view the present time as night and the time to come as day. You must learn to regard the other side of Jordan as your true rest and home, and this side as a desert land. Now is your wilderness, your battlefield, your place of trial. Your Canaan, your rest, your father's house must be in the future, in the time to come, or else it will be better for you to have never been born.
What is the particular time in which we live? The Apostle Paul tells us when he says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. I believe these words mean that the last order of things has arrived. The last stage in the history of the church has come. The law and the prophets have done their work. The Messiah, promised at the fall, has appeared and provided a complete salvation. The last revelation of God's will has been made. The way to life has been revealed clearly to all mankind. No further message from heaven to earth is to be expected before the end. No more books of Scripture are to be written. We have reached the last watch of the night. We have nothing to expect now but the sunrise and the morning. These words, which were true thousands of years ago, are, if possible, more true at the present time. They are words which should hit home with increasing power to the Church of Christ every year. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. I am one of those who think the day may not be so far off as some suppose. Some say that the Lord's return in glory is an event that, of course, cannot be in our times, but I see tokens of the sun being near the horizon. In any event, I will keep first in my mind the words of James, The coming of the Lord draweth nigh, the judge standeth before the door, and the words of Peter, the end of all things is at hand. James 5, 8-9, 1 Peter 4, 7. I am no prophet, and may very well be mistaken. I may die, and you may die, before Christ comes and the day dawns. But I ask every person to consider if there are signs of the times which deserve serious attention. I ask you to notice the things going on in the world and to give thought to what they are intended to teach. What are these signs of the times? Consider the following points. 1. What do we say about the mission movements which have been initiated in these latter days? As late as the early 1800s, Protestant churches seemed thoroughly asleep on the subject of missions. Hardly a single missionary was sent from the whole of Great Britain. The idea of preaching the gospel to savages and idolaters was ridiculed. The first promoters of missions were treated coldly by many who ought to have known better, but now the feeling is completely changed. We employ hundreds of missionaries in every quarter of the globe, and the Scripture says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Matthew 24.14 What do we say to the surprising interest taken in the Jewish nation in these latter days? Just a while ago, to be a Jew was a taunt, a byword, a proverb. No one cared for the souls of the children of Abraham. They were a people despised and scorned and trampled underfoot. It could have truly been said, This is Zion, whom no man seeketh after. Jeremiah 30, 17 but now the feeling is completely changed. The spiritual interests of Jews are a subject of deep concern to true Christians. The civil rights of Jews are cared for even to an extreme. The very city of Jerusalem has weight in the councils of kings. And the Scripture says, 
Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yea, the set time, is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones, and favor the dust thereof. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth thy glory. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. Psalm 102, 13-16. 3. What will we say about the wonderful spread of knowledge and communication between nations in these days? Even in the early nineteenth century it was uncommon to find a poor man who could read. But now it seems to be a rare thing to find a man who cannot read. Then there were few that ever traveled outside their own country. But now everyone can move in every direction, and our population is like a disturbed swarm of bees. New modes of transportation have altered the character of society. Time and space are made nothing. Seas, mountains, and rivers are no longer obstacles. God separated the nations in the day of Babel. Man is working hard to make them all one again. And what does the Scripture say? Shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Daniel 12:4. 4. What do we say about the wars and upheavals of nations which we have seen in these latter days? The mightiest empires on earth have been shaken to their very foundations. Kings, princes, and great men have been driven from their high positions and been made wanderers on the face of the earth. Human reasoning cannot explain it. These movements have taken place in the face of increased knowledge, civilization, and desire for peace. The shock came from beneath. The Scripture says, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Matthew 24, 7-8. 5. What do we say about the drying up of Islamic power? Several hundred years ago it was thought that the Turks were going to overrun all of Europe. No army seemed able to resist them. Province after province fell into their hands. When Martin Luther, in his sermons, wanted an illustration of boundless worldly power, he chose for his example the Turkish Empire. But now all is changed. Without much outward violence, Islamic strength has gradually dwindled away. There has been a collapse, a consumption, a worm at the heart of all their might. In spite of all the help from their allies, the Turkish Empire is like a man sick of a distressing disease. He may rally for a time with the help of strong remedies and by the application of new elements and treatments into his body, but he will never again be an exclusive, persecuting, purely Muslim power. The days of pure, intolerant Islam seem past and gone forever. What does the Scripture say? I quote symbolic prophecy with reverence, and without hesitation I admit I may be wrong in its application. But the passage I refer to is very remarkable. And the sixth angel poured out his phial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, 
and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. Revelation 16, 12-15 And 6. What do we say about the increased attention to unfulfilled prophecy that has emerged in these latter days? In the past there were few who paid any attention to the subject. The passages in Scripture which speak of things to come were relatively neglected or perverted with unusual ingenuity from their simple meaning. Now, on the contrary, the current of public feeling runs strongly in favor of prophetic study. Books on the subject are eagerly bought up. Lectures on prophecy are listened to with increased attention. In spite of the divisions that some views have created, and in spite of the discredit that some groups have brought on the whole subject, the study of unfulfilled prophecy still holds its ground. The Scripture says that the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Daniel 12, 9. The words seem to be unfolding, and the seal seems to be breaking. Can the end be far off? I place these points before you and ask you to give them your serious attention. I know we are all poor judges of our own times. We are apt to exaggerate the importance of events that take place in front of our own eyes. I dare say, if we had lived in Cromwell's days or under the first French Revolution, we would have thought the end of all things was close at hand. But even so, I think the points I have mentioned deserve sincere consideration. I see them as signs of our times. There may still be sensational changes before the end comes. I think it's possible there may be yet a time of trouble and conflict, such as never was since there was a nation. Daniel 12, 1. I believe there may be tribulation for the people of God, such as was not since the beginning of the world. Matthew 24, 21. But whatever comes, I see deep meaning in the words, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. In these words is the strongest motive for diligence in the work of doing good for people. More urgently spread the gospel over the world and work harder to sow the truth at home. Let us attempt to pluck more brands out of the fire. Zechariah 3 2. The time is short, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. In these words is the strongest consolation for the believer in Christ Jesus. Oh, for the strength and desire to hold on to it tighter! In a little while believers will forever part with disease. The sick and weary ones who have mourned over their seeming uselessness to the church, the weak and infirm who have had the will to work but not the power, the feeble and bedridden who have waited long years in quiet bedrooms until their eyes know every crack and speck on their walls, all, all will be set free. They will each have a glorious body like their Lord's. In a little while, mourning believers will part forever with their tears. Every wound in their hearts will be completely healed. Every empty place and gap caused by death will be entirely filled up. 
they will find that those who have died in the Lord were not lost, but gone ahead. They will see that infinite wisdom arranged every passing, by which one was taken and another left. They will magnify the Lord together with those who were once their companions in adversity, and acknowledge that He did all things well and led them in the right way. In a little while, believers will no longer feel that they are alone. They will no longer be scattered over the earth, a few in one place and a few in another. They will no longer mourn that they see so few to speak to intimately, as a friend speaks with a friend, so few who are of one mind and travel with them in the one narrow way. They will be united with the general assembly and church of the firstborn. They will join the blessed presence of all the believers of every name, people, and tongue. Their eyes will at last truly see. They will see a multitude of saints, too many to count, and not a wicked person among them. In a little while, working believers will find that their labor was not in vain. The ministers who preached and seemed to reap no fruit, the missionaries who testified of the gospel but none seemed to believe, the teachers who poured into children's minds but none seemed to pay attention, all, all will discover that they have not spent their strength in vain. They will find that the seed sown can spring up after many days, and that sooner or later in all labor there is profit. Ah, but when will these things be? Truly, we may say with Ezekiel, O Lord God, thou knowest. Ezekiel 37, 3. A thousand years in his sight are as one day, and one day as a thousand years. But we do know that in just a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. In a little while the last sermon will be preached, the last congregation will be dismissed. In a little while carelessness and infidelity will cease, perish, and pass away. The believers among us will be with Christ, and the unbelievers will be in hell. The night is far spent, and the day is at hand. What is the duty of all believers who know the time? That practical duty is stated in plain words. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. The word therefore is often used by the Apostle Paul in a very striking and forcible way. Look at a few examples, and you'll see what I mean. When he finishes the doctrinal part of the Epistle to the Romans and begins his practical teaching, what language does he use? Scripture, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Romans 12, 1. Emphasis added. When he has preached the resurrection of the body to the Corinthians, how does he close his argument? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Emphasis added. When he has laid a powerful doctrinal foundation for the Ephesian church, how does he proceed to address them on practical duties? I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Ephesians 4, 1. Emphasis added. And here, as in other places, the word therefore 
is used in a very searching and forcible way. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Emphasis added. I love to observe how closely the doctrine of Christ's second coming and kingdom is bound with personal holiness. I am astonished that any can regard the second advent and reign of the Lord Jesus as mere speculation or denounce them as unprofitable concerns. To me they seem extremely practical, or else I have read my Bible without understanding and in vain. The Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Philippians 4, 5. And to the Colossians, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Colossians 3, 2-5. He instructs the Hebrews to exhort one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Hebrews 10, 25. Peter tells his readers, We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. 2 Peter 3, 13-14. These texts appear to speak with a sure voice. I don't know how their force can be evaded. They make the coming of Christ and the day of glory an argument for increased holiness. And it is in the same way that Paul says, Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. How are you to cast off the works of darkness? Listen to me, and I will tell you. You need to lay aside everything in your life and habits which will not be able to stand the light of Christ's appearing. Make it a principle of conscience to do nothing you would not like to be found doing when Jesus comes again to gather his people together. This is a probing and piercing test. The application of it must be left to every person's own heart. We must each judge for ourselves and prove our own works. You must set up court within yourself and honestly bring your ways to trial. Oh, for the will to deal fairly and justly with ourselves, and for a daily readiness to judge ourselves so that we will not be judged by the Lord, and to condemn ourselves so that we will not be condemned at the last day. Shine the light of the day of Christ on your heart. Set your years, months, weeks, days, and hours in the full blaze of that day, and whatever you find that is related to darkness, pluck it out and throw it away. Keep no questionable habit. Don't compromise with doubtful practices. Break down every idol, great or small. Cut down every grove and clean the idols out of every room. Keep nothing that would cause you to blush with embarrassment under the eye of Christ. Do away with it at once, so that if he comes suddenly, he will not put you to shame. May he never say of your heart in that day, This heart claimed to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, but you have made it a den of thieves. 
Judge how you use your time by the test of Christ's second coming. Place in this balance your entertainment, your books, your companions, your conversation, your daily behavior in all areas of your life. Measure everything by this the night is far spent, the day is at hand, and ask yourself, Am I living as a child of the night or as one who looks for the day? Do this, and you will cast off the works of darkness. But how are you to put on the armor of light? Listen to me once more, and I will tell you. You ought to aim for every grace and habit that suits a believer in Christ, a child of God, and a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. Don't leave notable holiness and spirituality to a few, as if none but a few favored ones could be distinguished saints. You ought to strive to wear the armor of light, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit yourself. Ephesians 6, 14-17. Wherever you may live, and whatever may be your trials, no matter how great your difficulties and small your help, nothing should prevent you from aiming at the highest standard and behaving like one who believes that Christ is coming again. You should resolve, by God's help, to live so that the day of Christ will find you needing as little change as possible. You should seek to have tastes so heavenly, desires so spiritual, a will so subdued, and a mind so unworldly, that when the Lord appears you will be thoroughly in tune for His kingdom. It was a fine saying of Dr. Preston on his deathbed, I go to change my place, but not my company. I fear that some believers will be far less ready for the day of Christ than others who will have a far more abundant entrance into heaven. They will have more boldness and more confidence because they feel ready for the company of their Lord. I pray that everyone who listens to this may walk with God in the same way, so that like Enoch they are just transported from a lower level of communion to a higher one. They go from walking by faith to walking by sight. This would be putting on the armor of light. Let there be light in your heart continually. Let Christ reside there by faith, felt, known, and experienced by your soul. Let there be light in your life continually. Let Christ be reflected there, followed, imitated, and copied. Seek to be a light in the world and nothing less, a bright and clear light that men can see from far away. Do this, and you will put on the armor of light. Live as if you think Christ might come at any time. Do everything as if it were for the last time. Say everything as if it were for the last time. Read every chapter in the Bible as if you don't know whether you'll be allowed to read it again. Pray every prayer as if it might be your last opportunity. Listen to every sermon as if you are listening once and forever. This is the way to be found ready for Christ's second appearing. This is the way to put on the armor of light. Perhaps you are an unconverted person who has given no thought or care to the Lord's coming. If so, then remember these words, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. What are you doing? You eat, you drink, you sleep, you dress, you work. 
You buy, you sell, you laugh, you read, but you do nothing for your soul. Hell is opening its mouth for you, and you don't care. Christ is coming to judge the world, and you are unprepared. Time hurries on, and you are not ready for eternity. Oh, awake to a sense of your danger and repent today. Awake and call upon your God before it is too late to pray. Awake and seek the Lord Jesus Christ before the door is shut and the day of wrath begins. You may be considered wise and clever in this world, but you are living as a lunatic. But perhaps you are undecided and wavering between belief and unbelief. If this is you, then remember these words, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. What are you doing? You hear, you listen, you wish, you desire, you mean, you intend, you hope, you resolve, but you go no further. You see the ark, but you will not go in. You see the bread of life, but you do not eat it. You wait, and time goes on. The devil is saying over you, I will have this soul before long. Oh, come out from the world and procrastinate no more. Take up the cross, cast away vain excuses, confess Christ before men. Be careful that you do not make up your mind too late. Perhaps you are a true believer. Then remember these words, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. I ask you to live as if you believed the words we have been considering, and to show the world you think they are true. The closer you get to home, the more awake you ought to be. The more you understand the second personal coming of the Lord Jesus, the more lively your Christianity should be. It is too true. As Leg Richmond said on his deathbed, We are but half awake. We are but half awake. Even the best of us need reminders. Let us rub the sleepy eyes of our mind and look the speedy coming of our Master full in the face. We have spent enough time being drowsy and lazy servants. Now let us work like those who believe that the Master will soon be here. When I was a schoolboy, I remember that I could wake up, no matter how tired from a long journey, when I began to get close to home. As soon as I saw the old hills and trees and chimneys, the sense of weariness was gone, and I was all alive. The prospect of soon seeing much-loved faces, the joy of thinking of a family gathering, these were able to drive sleep away. Surely it ought to be the same with us in the matter of our souls. The night is far spent, and the day is at hand. In a little while he who is coming will come, and will not tarry. So let us cast off every work of darkness. Let us put on the whole armor of light. Let us be ashamed of our past drowsiness. Let us awake and sleep no more. Soon and Forever by John S. B. Monsell. Soon and forever the breaking of day shall chase all the night clouds of sorrow away. Soon and forever we'll see as we're seen and know the deep meaning of things that have been. Where fightings without and conflicts within shall weary no more in the warfare with sin. Where tears and where fears, and where death shall be never, Christians with Christ shall be soon and forever. Soon and forever, 
such promise our trust, though ashes to ashes and dust be to dust, soon and forever our union shall be made perfect, our glorious Redeemer, in Thee. When the cares and the sorrows of time shall be o'er, its pangs and its partings remembered no more, where life cannot fail and where death cannot sever, Christians with Christ shall be soon and forever. Soon and forever the work shall be done, the warfare accomplished, the victory won. Soon and forever the soldier lay down, the sword for a harp, the cross for a crown. Then droop not in sorrow, despond not in fear, a glorious tomorrow is brightening and near. When, blessed reward for each faithful endeavor, Christians with Christ shall be soon and forever. Come, Lord, and tarry not by Horatius Bonar. Come, Lord, and tarry not, bring the long-looked-for day. Oh, why these years of waiting here, these ages of delay? Come, for thy saints still wait, daily ascends their sigh. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, dost thou not hear the cry? Come, for thy Israel pines, an exile from thy fold. Oh, call to mind thy faithful word, and bless them as of old. Come, for the good are few, they lift their voice in vain. Faith waxes fainter on the earth, and love is on the wane. Come, for the corn is ripe, put in thy sickle now. Reap the great harvest of the earth, sower and reaper thou. Come in thy glorious might, come with the iron rod, scattering thy foes before thy face, most mighty Son of God. Come and make all things new, build up this ruined earth, restore our faded paradise, creation's second birth. Come and begin thy reign of everlasting peace. Come, take the kingdom to thyself, great King of righteousness.